Hello, my lovely people, and welcome to The Fletcher Files, a Murder, She Wrote podcast with your host, Monty. This week, we will be discussing Corned Beef and Carnage, Season 3, Episode 5, first aired November 2nd, 1986. And the IMDb summary reads, Jessica gets involved when her niece, Victoria, is believed to be connected to the murder of her lecturous boss. Okay. <laughs> Red, he is a creeper. So there's that. Okay. <laughs> we have a few returners. So two returners as different characters and two familiar faces. So we have Warren Berlinger who we will remember as Coach Pat Patillo from Sudden Death. In this episode, he plays the security guard, Jim Ingram. We also have Ken Swolford, who we will recognize as Leo Kowalski, the contractor in Joshua Peabody Died Here. Possibly, (laughs) okay. Here, he plays Grover Barth which is the absolute worst name for a person who owns a restaurant chain, okay? Yeah, Barth is really, he should have changed his name, honestly, okay? Then we will recognize these two lovebirds, Howard and Victoria, as Jeff Conway and Jeannie Francis. We first met them in Birds of a Feather, where they got married. So now this is them sometime later as a married couple. And he still ain't got no job, okay? (laughs) He's still trying to make it as an actor and ain't got job the first, okay? And she now, however, has another corporate job in advertising. So now let's go over all of the characters and get right into the story. So, of course, we have Victoria and Howard Griffin. We have Christine Clifford, Jim Ingram, Leland Biddle, Larry Kincaid, Myron Kincaid, Lieutenant Spalletti, Aubrey Thornton, Grover Barth, and Polly Barth. How unfortunate for both of them. Anyway, let's get into it. So, we open up during an advertising meeting with Larry Kincaid, Victoria, and Grover Barth. So Larry is presenting their ideas for this year's advertising campaign for Grover Barth and his corned beef castle restaurant chain. So Larry is for real not fully prepared He is snapping his fingers at Victoria to fill in the blanks that he does not know. I'm guessing because he did not create this campaign. But it, ridiculous, absolutely ridiculous. Victoria is clearly prepared for this meeting, thankfully. However, Grover Barth is not ready to sign the renewal contract as yet. The advertising budget that Larry Kincaid is requiring for this campaign is $11 million. 
And now, mind you, this is 1986. $11 million. Like, I don't even know how many restaurants they have at this point. But $11 million? That's crazy for corned beef, okay? (laughs) A whole mess. Anyway, Grover says he wants to look over the campaign with the quote-unquote little lady, his wife, I'm guessing. And so Larry suggests that Polly, his wife, joins them for lunch, which he agrees with. Grover then approaches Victoria and proceeds to run his finger down her sleeve and make some really inappropriate comments. Like, it's just straight up creepy and unnecessary. And Victoria is appropriately grossed out. He then thankfully leaves. Victoria then tells Larry that she can't go to lunch. She's having lunch with her husband and her aunt, who is coming in from out of town. And Larry's like, forget the family reunion. We're talking about survival here. Because we find out later that they really need the corned beef castle account because it's valued at a lot of money. Clearly, $11 million is a lot. And so it's one of their biggest accounts. So Victoria has resigned herself to having go to go to this lunch. The next scene, we're downstairs with Jessica and Howard. They're in the building. They pass by Francoise, which is a restaurant that we learn is where all of the high-level advertising deals occur. So Jessica suggests that they have lunch there. They then get onto the elevator, which is an express elevator, to the Kincaid Advertising Office. It is on the penthouse floor, and that is one of the benefits. So as they get off the elevator, Aubrey Thornton comes running up to try to catch it. He misses it, and Howard introduces Aubrey to Jessica. Now, I don't know how long Victoria has been working there, but everybody knows Howard. So the secretary or receptionist at the front desk knows him. Aubrey, who's one of the higher level executives, technically, right? We'll find out more details about Aubrey in a a little bit. But they all know him. So Aubrey is very cynical and catches the next elevator down, okay? Like, bye. Thank you for making this awkward and upsetting. (laughs) So Victoria comes out and... She greets Jessica and she's like, oh, I can't come to lunch. I have to basically put on a command performance for a client. Jessica's like, oh, no, I understand you're a professional. So work comes first. You know what? We can just meet for dinner and we'll do that. So go to your lunch. Don't even worry about me. I'll keep myself occupied. It's fine. And the fact is, Jessica is just a really great person. So she's not going to make Victoria feel bad about the fact that something came up at work. That happens all the time. Things come up, meetings get scheduled that are beyond your control, and you have to change plans. 
Now, Howard's getting a little upset about this, but I'm like, uh, how are your bills being paid, Howard? Because of her and this job. So I'm going to need you to calm all the way down talking about, well, Jessica came from out of town. Jessica knows she came from out of town. Victoria knows she came from out of town. But Victoria is trying to keep this job, something that apparently you can't seem to do. So, okay. (laughs) I'm just saying. So the next scene, we are at this client lunch with Victoria, Grover, Polly, and Larry. And Grover's like, "Uh, you know what? Polly and I really didn't like the campaign that you presented. He says that it lacked imagination. And so Larry's like, "Uh, you know what? You're right. We need to move forward with new things. I am going to just scrap that campaign and come up with something totally new, a new concept. And Polly's like, for example, right? Because she knows he's just blowing smoke. And he's like, no, 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 it's fine. Like we can meet tomorrow and go over the new ideas that I have. Like, don't even worry about it because I haven't figured it out yet. Which granted is reasonable because if you're just finding out at this point that they don't like the campaign and now you have to come up with a new one, it's okay that you don't have one on deck. The fact that they expected you to have one on deck after just finding out literally three seconds ago that they wanted something new and in a different direction is unreasonable. But he cleans it up and it's like, tomorrow I'll have something ready for you to see. Don't you worry about it. The camera then pans over to two people sitting across the room. And we meet them and they are Christine and Leland Biddle. And so Christine is like, listen, like, it doesn't matter Biddle Advertising is doing well, $50 million a year in advertising. That's not chopped liver. And Leland responds, well, with $50 million more, even chopped corned beef would look great on the balance sheet. So Christine is like, okay, so you want the corned beef castle account? He's like, uh, yeah, duh. Why are we spying on these people? <laughs> I didn't want that account. So she's like, the account can be had. So Leland offers her extra $100,000 to get that account. Now, mind you, the original Kincaid advertising presentation was for an $11 million budget. So if it's $11 million and she brings that account in, and she's only getting $100,000. Now, if that's a bonus in addition to whatever percentage she would get, then that's good. But that better not be total. Okay, she better get a portion of that however many millions they about to get this advertising job for. And so Christine's like, "Um, did you say vice president? And Leland's like, we can discuss that. That's a possibility. I'm like, girl, you need to get that in writing, okay? Or audio tape it, something, because people forget very quickly, okay? Quickly. (laughs) So the next scene, we have Grover and Larry speaking, 
and Larry, I'm assuming, is planning to have dinner with Grover, which I don't understand if you are supposed to be presenting this tomorrow to him that you need to put something together tonight. And so, and I say that because Grover is like, oh, well, Polly's going to be visiting her sister in Queens and she can't stand me. So I'm not going. That mean the sister. I was like, oh, she has good taste. Great. Okay. <laughs> he is a creeper. Like both Larry and Grover are creepers. Grover to a much different degree because he is handsy as well. So Larry's like, well, you can have dinner with me then. And he's like, yeah, or your associate Victoria. And he says the creepiest, cringiest line I have heard so far this season. And he says, quote, Something about that little filly brings out the stallion in this old horse, end quote. Gross. Okay. (laughs) Disgusting. Anyway, so the next scene, we're outside and Jessica and Howard are having hot dogs. And Howard is doing the most. Like, he is just like, oh, I'm a terrible person. Like, Victoria's doing all this work and I can't do my acting thing. I feel bad. Then get a job. Like, I'm I'm not even sorry. Then get a job, okay? If you are so concerned about how much work Victoria is putting in so that she can make sure you have a roof over your head and food on the table, then get a job. And audition on the side. How many actors have regular jobs and then audition on the side until they make it? Why are you just sitting at home scratching your behind? Like, that's my my question. (laughs) Okay, I don't feel sorry for you. Because if you really were concerned, then you would get some nine to five and make it happen. My question, however, is, is this something Victoria wants to do? You know what I mean? Like, is this something that happens to pay the bill? So that's why she keeps at it. But she took the job because it's something she wanted to do. So with that comes long hours, tired, you got to cancel things, you got to stay late, all of that. You know, my thing is like, I wanted to be an attorney and I understood that it would require even after school was done and I got my real career job that it would take hours and there would be sleepless nights and, you know, stress and all of that. But it's because it was something I did. If someone was like, oh, I feel really bad because they're, she's doing this. It's like, no, it's something I want to do. And whatever comes with the territory comes with the territory. Now, if I was like, oh, I don't want to work in some big law firm. I want to work, you know, doing teaching, okay? Professors don't make a lot, a lot of money. Maybe I want to teach, but I got to stay at this big corporate job because I got to support a grown man. So yeah, that's different, okay? (laughs) That is different. If you got to struggle because he ain't going to get no job because he wants to be an actor, 
okay? But if you're doing a job that you really want to and you're dealing with the stress and you're like, dude, it don't matter. You can get a job. You don't have to get a job. I'm going to do this job regardless. That is different. I have not figured out what this situation is, whether she is busting her behind at a job she hates because she needs to keep food on the table and he won't get a regular job, or if regardless of what he does, this is the job and the circumstances that she wants to be in and her goal is to be an advertising executive. So Jessica is like you know um have y'all talked like have you had a conversation about what you envision and what you want to do and what she envisions and what she wants to do so y'all can get on the same page have y'all talked to each other didn't we have this conversation in birds of a feather about like y'all need to communicate and y'all still ain't communicating trash that's what that is <laughs> a whole what is that mess exactly so Howard is like you know what I'm concerned that not necessarily that she's doing this and making the money but Larry Kincaid is a terrible person and Howard's afraid that he will ask Victoria to put her body on the line for an account and Jessica is like, no, Victoria would never do that, which I agree. She would never do that. She would quit before she did that foreshadowing for you. But that does not mean that Larry Kincaid won't ask her to do that. Yeah. Again, foreshadowing. Now, next scene. Okay. We are in the office, the Kincaid advertising office with Myron and Larry. So apparently they're brothers, right? They're brothers. And Myron is complaining that Larry is spending money before accounts receivable comes in. So he is spending money before they get it. And not only that, but that Grover Barth and Corn Beef Castles owes them $4 million dollars. So when are we going to get that money? How about you be concerned about them paying that $4 million they owe us trying to extend this contract? We can't put out any more money on this, this campaign when we are owed money. So Larry kind of is brushing it off. Victoria then walks in and she has a whole new campaign because she's the one who is going to be the one who comes up with the new campaign because Larry is really just a figurehead, to be honest. So Aubrey then busts in to the office and he's like, why wasn't I notified about the Corned Beef Castle's presentation this morning? Larry's like, you're no longer on the account. And Aubrey's like, I'm the one who brought the account to this firm. So how are you talking about I'm off of it? And Larry's like, well, if you don't like it, then quit, okay? You brought it in as a mom-and-pop operation. Now it's a multi-million dollar campaign, you know? So Aubrey's like, I have a contract, okay? So 
He's like, that's what you want. You want me to quit? No, I have a contract. You're, it's not going to be that easy for you to get rid of me. And Larry's like, your ideas are just out of touch. You, you know, you're worthless, basically. And Victoria's like, no, Aubrey has really great ideas. You just need to pay attention to him. Like, this is crazy. And Larry then responds, the only reason that you're on the corned beef castles account is because Grover Barth has the hots for you. Gross. And then he just piles on and he's like, you're going to go to dinner with him tonight and tomorrow Grover Barth better come in with a big smile on his face. And Victoria's like, uh, no, I'm not going to dinner with that man. And the only reason that you have any of these awards is because of me, Aubrey, and what was the other guy's name? Phil? God rest his soul. And you know what? I'm not going to put myself on the line for this. I quit. And so Larry's like, I'll work all night. I'll put this together because you know what? None of y'all are worth anything. I can do without you. I don't need any of you. Get out of here. So they all go ahead and leave up out of there as he's talking about he's still the best ad man on the street. I'm like, "Mm mm-hmm. But you sitting there reading Victoria's work talking about you going to stay up all night and come up with a campaign. You should have handed that right back to her and like, I could start this from scratch. I don't need you. Clearly you do if you're sitting there reading what she put together, sir. I caught that. So they all leave the office and Christine comes in. Christine from the Biddle Advertising Agency and Larry is completely distracted by her 1986 beauty. Okay. (laughs) She's beautiful for the time. That's for sure. And so they have a conversation. She's trying to get a job. He's like, I am definitely interested in you. Take that how you want it. Right. (laughs) Then he's like, oh, I have a meeting to get to. Okay, um, speak with my secretary and set up a time for us to have lunch or something next week. So they both leave the office. He walks off. The secretary is on the phone and Christine's like, oh, I left my purse. So she goes back in and of course she picks up the folder that he left on his desk that clearly has stamped on it. Corned beef castles, confidential. Okay, he just, he didn't put that in a drawer. He not only put it on his desk, but he put it on the far corner of his desk that was the closest to where Christine had been sitting. Okay, she goes in there, picks up her portfolio, puts it right on top of the conveniently left confidential advertising campaign folder, picks it up and leaves. And waves to the secretary who allowed her to go in there by herself to her boss's empty office, okay? While she's on the phone, instead of holding up her finger and saying, wait a second, I'll go in with you. After Christine walks out, 
Then the secretary, who's now off the phone, closes the door. Now, this secretary is terrible, okay? She wasn't there when Christine walked in. Why wasn't the door locked or secured in some way if you had walked away from your desk? Two, the receptionist shouldn't have let you back there until she confirmed with the secretary that Mr. Kincaid was available for his four o'clock appointment. So this is for a penthouse place, a penthouse um, firm, okay, agency. They have terrible support staff, okay? (laughs) No one should be able to walk into the manager's office without him or her being notified. I promise you, if someone popped up in front of my office door, that I was not alerted was coming, there would be problems, okay? There would be problems because there's too many people in between the outside and my office door where I work for someone to just pop up. Now, if they were meeting somebody else and so they were already upstairs in the suite of offices and they popped in to say, hey, that is very different. That is very different. But Christine was there specifically to meet with Larry Kincaid. Okay, at four o'clock. One, his secretary should have known that he had a four o'clock and been there expecting the person. Two, the receptionist should have needed to call back to let the secretary know because she's definitely not calling Larry Kincaid. And we didn't see him pick up phone the first, so she clearly didn't call him. What is going on with this ad agency? But okay, they need to move the plot along, so that's what we're going to do. Okay, so (laughs) this is terrible. I'm not paying $11 million for an advertising campaign when your support staff is letting randos just come up into your office. I don't feel like my confidential information is going to be secured because you know what? It's not, sir. It's not. So the next scene, we have Aubrey trying to convince Victoria not to quit. And she's like, no, he has gone too far. There is a limit. And Aubrey's like, you know what? Um, the, the fact is like, you know, you should just go and apologize. He really appreciates when people grovel. Aubrey, I cannot even. He asked her to sleep with a client in order to secure an advertising campaign job, okay? I am not going to apologize for saying, screw you, I quit. She was as polite as possible because she could have cursed that man up and down that advertising street, to be honest, because the level of disrespect that he had for her to ask her to do something like that is above and beyond. So Aubrey, what you can do is get out my face. That's what you can do. How dare you say, go ahead and apologize to get your job back. I don't care if I got to sleep on the street. You know what? Because I done lost this job because I would not compromise my integrity and use my body in order to get a campaign for a company that's not even paying me like that? Okay, no, no, 
That is outrageous, actually. I didn't necessarily have a problem with you, Aubrey, before this, but thinking back on the fact that you were telling her to beg or grovel for her job back, which would have required her, let's think this through, which would have required her to go out to dinner with Grover Barth and provide whatever services he was expecting to get in order for him to sign that renewal contract. Are we... Are we on the same page here? Because that's what that would have required. Oh, if you're so sorry and you really want your job back, then you're going to have to do what I asked you to do. Absolutely not, sir. Aubrey could kick rocks too. Actually, factually. That is trash. He is as trash as Larry who asked her to do it and Grover Barth who expected Larry to set this situation up. Aubrey is right up there. I, I don't know how I missed that the time the first few times I've watched this. But thinking back, that is too much. And the worst part is that Aubrey is leaving early. He's under contract, so he can't be fired. So what is it of you? Like, what, what does it matter to you? Her leaving or staying is not going to make a difference to how terrible... Larry Kincaid is treating you. And Myron ain't no better because Myron ain't doing nothing to help you actually have stuff to do during the day. Larry has completely iced you out as you sit and wait for your contract to come to conclusion because you refuse to quit. So what difference does it make whether Victoria stays or leaves? It's not putting any more money into your pocket and it's not taking any money out of your pocket. So that makes you even more trash of a person to suggest that she grovel for her job back after this man has asked her to sleep with a married creeper in order to get a renewal contract signed. Trash. So the next scene, Victoria has made it home. Howard isn't there. Jessica isn't there. So she listens to the voicemail. And Howard said that the audition went really well. He thinks that he landed it. The second call is from Jessica saying that she's running a bit late, but she should be able to make it there by nine. And the final message is from Howard's agent secretary, I believe, or the producer secretary, somebody saying that that the part went to somebody else. So hearing this, Victoria is like, I do now have to go back and get my job. No, you don't, Victoria. No, you don't. Because what you need to do is tell Howard to get a job. That's what you need to tell him. Because there is no way that you need to go back and compromise who you are because that man won't get a regular job. He need to get a job. That's what he needs to do. Okay? That disgusting actually Howard is actually trash as well he he is trash as well that while he's trying to be this actor he does not have a job okay he was doing insurance then in birds of a feather he he done lost that insurance job after like two weeks so then he had to go and do the drag shows which apparently he was terrible at but terrible in a great way that people were coming to see him and then that, you know, went to hell because uh, 
of course, somebody was murdered and Jessica had to come in and save the day and figure out who what had happened and then the club got shut down so he couldn't even he he couldn't even help hold that job then he got a part in a soap opera i think that's how we left off he got a part in a soap opera clearly that didn't work out why didn't you go back to insurance why didn't you go and get a job at mcdonald's why didn't you go and get a job at francois something but you sitting at home okay we're not gonna go back into that okay <laughs> I am just disgusted at the fact that Victoria thinks that her only option is to go back and try to get her job after what just happened because she needs to be able to pay the bills and make sure there's a roof over their head and food in the refrigerator and, you know, money for their Metro cards because... Her husband doesn't have a job and is really not trying to get one that's not acting. Okay, okay, okay. So Victoria goes back to Kincaid. She goes upstairs. She meets with the security guard. And she's like, oh, there's something I need to discuss with Mr. Kincaid. She signs in. She goes to his office. And if I tell you it was 30 seconds later that we hear this blood-curdling scream. The security guard goes running into Kincaid's office and sees Kincaid dead on the floor. Now, the security guard is like, what happened, Mrs. Griffin? And I'm like, wait, the amount of time that it took to walk at a regular pace from the security desk back to an owner's office probably took her 25 seconds to do. What could have happened? She saw him dead on the floor after she walked in and walked up to the desk and immediately screamed. There is no way in the world that there was enough time. Like, let's just even think about this. There was enough time. There was no way in the world there was enough time for her to after signing in within 30 seconds she wasn't running. She was walking at a regular pace to get to an owner's office. So, you know, it wasn't just right around the corner. It's going to be back up into the agency, right? So she has to get in there, get past reception, get to the back of the suite where I'm sure the owner's offices are, Myron and Larry's, get into the office. And she supposedly picked something up, bashed him in the head and then screamed. Or screamed as she was bashing him in the head and then dropped in and was standing there continuing to scream? That doesn't make sense. There wasn't enough time for that to actually happen. But okay, that's what this security guard thinks happened. That she hit him over the head. That something happened. She hit him over the head and now he dead. Because you die immediately when you're hit in the head. Okay? Apparently in the Murder, She Wrote uh, universe, as soon as... You get hit in the back of the head, front of the head, side of the head, whatever. You automatically die immediately. Your heart stops. You are dead. You are cold. Rigor mortis sets in. That's it. That is it. So all that happened within 30 seconds because that that's how it works. <laughs> Not in real life. But apparently this security guard thinks that that's how it works. So the next scene, the police are there. Lieutenant Spalletti. And 
he is looking at the award that was next to the body, which does not have any blood on it. So we're not even going to discuss the fact that it did not have any blood on the murder weapon, but okay. And he's like, he reads it out, the name of the award. And he says, this one really did have his name on it. Crickets, exactly. So (laughs) he is then asking Victoria, like, why did you scream? What did he do? Lieutenant, did you not realize? Did you not get a timeline? Did you not hear what time, see what time she signed in versus what time the police were called? Did you not speak with the security guard to ask how long was she gone from your desk before you heard a scream? But you're jumping to conclusions that she was there for some sexual reason, okay? And that, uh, with, okay, so that doesn't make sense, right? Because if she was there because they were having some sort of rendezvous, if he got handsy, why would she bash him over the head? Like, that's what she had come there for. Unless she came there for another reason, he got handsy and then she bashed him upside the head. Neither one of those things happened, but I'm saying for the lieutenant's purposes. If you think he did something, that means that, but you're implying that they had some sort of clandestine relationship. So yeah, unless you're saying that she came there for a sexual tryst, but then he wanted something that she wasn't willing to do so that she then bashed him upside the head, which is not what happened, But I don't think he put that much thought into this. (laughs) He just automatically assumed, because sexism, that this woman must have been there to provide sexual favors because how else was she an account executive? She is a woman. Period. Okay? I, I can sense the sexism. However, he does give Jessica some level of respect. It grows as the episode goes forward. So he's not a complete pig in general because he does have some level of respect for Jessica, even though he's like, hey, lady, what are you doing? Um, Though that's valid because like she's walking all through the crime scene. So, mm valid to be like, hey lady, what are you doing? Victoria explains that the reason she screamed is because she is a normal human being who saw a dead body on the ground. So she screamed because she was terrified. Because the thing is, I don't know when he was murdered. I don't know if the person's still here. I've never seen a dead body or a murdered person, not even just a dead body, but a murdered person before. So I naturally, as a normal human being screamed because I was afraid. Okay, logical reasons how crazy of us to think that she would not scream upon finding a dead body, that she would only scream if she were attacked and had to murder somebody. Lieutenant, Lieutenant. But I'm going to give this to the writers. I'm going to say it was the writers. They needed to move the plot along. They only have 42 minutes to do this in. So that's what we're going to go with. My other issue. Now, I did like this episode. (laughs) 
this seems very ranty already, right? Um, my question, I have several of them really quick. One, why is there no blood? He was bashed in his head with a large metal award, like solid metal award. There's no blood on Victoria because there would have been blood spatter. Any of us who watch Forensic Files knows that for a fact. Okay. Two, there's no blood on the murder weapon. Three, there's no blood visible on the back of his head, the back of his shirt, or on the ground. Four, if there was blood, it would be dried because he was bleeding for a period of time. Was the blood fresh or was it dried? That would help determine the time of death, but we never hear about blood at all. How is that possible? He wasn't choked out. He was bashed in the back of the head. So, mm, blood. Uh, I think y'all missed that. I think I think y'all missed the whole fact that there's no blood and you couldn't put blood because the time of death would not have jived and allowed you to be able to perpetuate this false narrative in order to move the plot along. I get that. I'm calling it out, but I get that. So Jessica brings up the fact that there is an uneaten corned beef sandwich on the desk. And the lieutenant's like, he wasn't poisoned. He was brained with an advertising award. I'm sorry. You were like, he was brained? Like, granted, I've been saying he's been bashed in the head, but I am not a law enforcement officer speaking with a possible witness. So <laughs> talking about he was brained. Okay. So <laughs> Lieutenant is like, listen, the body is warm. So he must have died at the time that Victoria came in. How is that even a thing? Like, his... <sighs> we are not even going to discuss how long it takes for a body to cool off. We're not going to discuss whether or not there was air conditioning in the building or not that would have affected the cooling off of the body. We are not going to discuss the fact that there was no blood. No blood. <laughs> he was brained with an advertising award and nobody thinks that this is odd. Okay. Okay. The lieutenant then goes to speak with the security guard. I'm just going to say, the security guard is showing quite a bit of cleavage. Okay. <laughs> His shirt is up, but and he has had a hard night, clearly. <laughs> he just got his decolletage just out, just out. Uh, <laughs> a mess. Anyway, so he has the sign-in sheet and they're looking over it. And so they notice that... Now, none of this affects the lieutenant's position that uh, Victoria is the one who murdered Larry Kincaid immediately after walking into the office for whatever reason, right? None of this changes his his position, but this, it should, it should, because we don't know the time of death. He is just assuming. Now, they see on the sign-in sheet that Grover Barth came in at 7 and was out at 
Jessica says he's a client. He's not an employee. Jessica points out that there was a Mary Jones and the security guard says, yes, she was an interior designer. And Jessica notices that there's no sign in of a delivery man. To which the security guard says he came at around eight. Now, going back to the fact that this is now around nine o'clock, we find out it's like nine something at this point. The sandwich was delivered at eight. It is a corned beef sandwich. I'm going to take a guess that it was hot when it was delivered as opposed to a cold sandwich, which could sit. You know, that could sit. But a hot sandwich, you're going to eat immediately. And it was on the middle, it was in the middle of his desk. So it wasn't even like, oh, he would he put it to the side and was working and got distracted and didn't get to his sandwich. It was in the middle of his desk where it was poised to be eaten. So mm, just saying. So the next scene, we are at in Victoria's office. She is packing her stuff to go. Myron and Aubrey walk in and they're like, what are you doing? She's like, I'm leaving. I quit yesterday. And now that Larry Kincaid is dead, I'm definitely leaving. So Aubrey's like, stay. I'm going to get back on the Corned Beef Castle account. We've seen the the work that you've done and we want you to stay. Like, We'll give you the opportunity to do new and different things, you know, blah, blah, blah. So she's like, uh, and like Myron's going to be taking over. He is Larry's only living heir. It's going to be a different advertising agency. It's going to be run differently. So she says, okay, okay. They then sweeten the pot for 10 with $10,000 a year over what she's currently making. She says, it'll be great to have new fresh ideas. So she accepts and she decides to stay. The next scene, we're at a restaurant with Victoria and Jessica. And Victoria indicates that she's hanging in this cutthroat business because of Howard so that he can pursue acting. (sighs) I'm gonna leave that there. I'm just gonna leave that there. We've already discussed how I feel about this gonna leave it there and so Jessica is like have you had a conversation with Howard about this clearly not clearly they are on two separate pages in two different books in two different libraries okay (laughs) so as they're talking Christine comes up And she introduces herself and she says she's from Biddle Advertising. She wants Victoria to join the Biddle Advertising Agency. And she's offering her $10,000 more than whatever she's making. Which I'm like, "Mm, could she lie about that? Not Christine, I mean Victoria. To be like, oh, I make $100,000 a year so that they pay her $110,000 when in fact she makes ninety. dollars I don't know, because that would be interesting because she could say she was making whatever, so she could end up still getting more than the $10,000 because that's what Kincaid offered her to stay there. So it's the same difference. Victoria says that she feels like she owes a commitment to Kincaid. 
Christine is like, oh, you know what? I'll see if I can get Mr. Biddle to increase the offer. And she then turns to Jessica as she's leaving. And she's like, Mrs. Fletcher, I love your product. I'm like, how how advertising of her to say that? (laughs) So Jessica's like, gets her card and there's a picture of her. Clearly, it's her acting headshot on this business card. But I'm like, yes, girl, get your headshot out there. And (laughs) Jessica's like, I remember where I saw this name. She was there on Larry Kincaid's calendar for a 4 p.m. appointment on the day that Larry was murdered. Lieutenant Spalletti then comes in and he arrests Victoria. The next scene, we're at the precinct. (laughs) I know that it was just like, and she's arrested. So (laughs) the lieutenant says that the advertising award was the murder weapon and only Larry and Victoria's prints were on there. And Victoria said that while I picked it up to make a point, Myron and Aubrey were there when that happened. Jessica's like, the murderer could have wore gloves because of course the murderer would wear gloves. (sighs) Now, however, if it was in the heat of passion or in self-defense, then yes, Victoria would not have been thinking about covering her fingerprints. She would have just grabbed it and knocked him in the head. But again, the timeline does not work out. There's some comment with regards to the security guard and Lieutenant says that he was fired that that morning. So the security guard has been fired. And Jessica brings up the fact that just because Mr. Kincaid died shortly before, shortly before Victoria got there does not mean that he wasn't hit in the head a long time before. Like, he could have been hit in the head an hour or two beforehand, and it took that long for him to actually die. My thing is, he would have and should have bled out. Okay. Okay. We're not going to talk about blood anymore. We're not going to do that. So, Jessica also brings up the fact that the name Mary Jones seems made up. And Lieutenant says... Having never met this woman, knowing nothing about her, just that she's allegedly an interior designer, that the bimbo, okay, bimbo, yeah, came and went 45 minutes before the time of death, that Kincaid was iced at 9.15. So that means that his sandwich was sitting there for an hour and 15 minutes, okay? just saying and that would not defeat Jessica's argument that he was murdered before not murdered before that he was hit in the head earlier and just took long to die so 45 minutes before he could have been bashed in the head at that time and it took 45 minutes for him to die and somehow not bleed out I I said we weren't going to talk about that sorry Um, It's just outrageous. (laughs) So Jessica's like, so mm, the sandwich was delivered at 8 p.m. And it was uneaten at 9 p.m. Why, Lieutenant? Why? And the Lieutenant, who is eating a sandwich himself, okay? (laughs) He's like, ah, 
you may actually have something. I'll give you 24 hours. And I'm like, okay, is she deputized? Like, what? You know what? Fine, fine. You know what? Jessica needs to solve this murder because the lieutenant ain't going to do it. So, okay. Give her, give her her space, okay? Give her her space. So, in the next scene, we're in the office with Aubrey and Myron talking. Jessica comes in and she's like, your secretary was away from her desk. And again, some random person. Now, Jessica is now familiar to the receptionist, but still. Some random person walking into an owner's office unattended is outrageous. And that's why their entire support staff is trash. So there's that on that. So we find out here that Myron has never heard of Mary Jones, that the office was redecorated a year ago. They don't throw away money like that. Jessica's like, oh, well, is that why you fired the security guard to save money? To which Aubrey says, I called the agency this morning to have him fired. When you let the head of a company get murdered, uh, I don't think you're really doing your job. True. True. Can't argue with that. So the next scene, we are outside at a corned beef castle franchise opening. And... At the end of the introduction, they offer corned beef sandwiches on the house for everyone. I'm like, that? Wow. Okay. Y'all got money like that? Y'all got money, money? Where's that $4 million for the Kincaid agency that you owe them? But you giving out free corned beef sandwiches to everybody in attendance. And it looked like it was at least 20, 30 people. I'm just saying. I'm just saying. Where your money at? So Grover and Polly um, are trying to exit to hurry up and go cash that check when Jessica approaches them. And she's like, oh, you know, um, I just wanted to come and, you know, I saw this in the paper and I wanted to see what this was all about. But also, like, are you doing okay? It seems like you were the last person to see Mr. Kincaid alive. And Polly was like, "Uh, I thought you were going to the movies, to which he said, I was, but I had to stop there because I thought that I left my glasses there. And so Jessica was like, did you find them? He was like, find what? Your glasses. He was like, oh, they were in another suit. Yeah, they they weren't there. They were in another suit. I'm like, "Mm, okay, that sounds like a hot lie. But (laughs) the next scene, Jessica goes and finds the security guard. He is at... um, his new job and we find out that at 8 p.m the sandwich was delivered um he called Kincaid who said okay that the guy could be sent back because the security guard could not leave his post we also find out the security guard really didn't know the big guys you know so the owners or whatnot so he couldn't say whether or not that was Larry Kincaid's voice um And that Mary Jones had come in and he thinks that she kind of had an eye for him. I'm like, sir, I'm glad you're that confident, but no. (laughs) Anyway, so he said that she came in. She said that she had forgot to measure the drapes in one of the offices. So that's why she was there and she wasn't there for too long. Jessica then gives 
this uh, security guard a copy of Christine's card, which has her headshot. And he recognizes her as Mary Jones, but it's like, oh, she has a different name here. Maybe Mary Jones is her professional name. I'm like, is she a stripper? <laughs> or an actress? Like, uh, anyway, so the next scene, we are at um, Howard and Victoria's apartment. And Victoria's not there, of course, because she has a job. And Howard and Jessica are talking. There's Howard then gets a call and it's from his agent saying that Biddle Advertisement has a commercial that they want him to audition for. So the next scene, we're at the audition and it's for a funeral home, Slumberland. And Christine and Leland are there. They hire him with the condition uh, for this as Mr. Slumberland. So he will be the uh, mascot. I don't think that's the word, you know, but he will be the face of the brand. And the stipulation is that Victoria will be his accounts manager. And when Victoria comes to Biddle Advertising, she will also bring the corned beef cabbage account. So Jessica brings up the fact that Christine was having a meeting with Larry Kincaid the day that he was murdered. And she said, oh, this happens all the time. He offered me a job and I turned it down. It happens every day. And so Jessica brings up the fact that she, Christine, was identified as Mary Jones. Why were you there? And so she admits that she borrowed something that afternoon and she just wanted to return it before it was noticed. And so Jessica, no, actually Howard is the one who says, so when you went there to try to return it, he confronted you and you murdered him. And she's like, no, he was already dead when I got there. I just left the, you know, the folder and I, I left, but he was already dead when I got there. And now this was after 8 p.m., that she was there. She So she had to be there at 8.15. So my thing is, he was probably unconscious, but not dead yet. Because if he died at 9.15 and she's there and well, they said 45 minutes before. So let's say 8.30. If she's there at 8.30, then he wasn't dead yet if the body was still warm at 9.15 he may have been unconscious and unmoving and that's why she thought he was dead. So the next scene, we're at the precinct because Christine is convinced by Jessica to tell the police what happened. She admits that she was returning a confidential file. And so the lieutenant then concludes that the time of death was wrong. Now, the time of death may not have been wrong but the time of the actual blunt force trauma was earlier. But the time of death, the time he actually died, was probably correct. But it did not happen instantaneous to the time that he was hit in the back of the head. Which is more realistic than him being hit in the head and just automatically dying.
after Christine is escorted to give a statement, Leland Biddle comes in saying that he got some strange rambling phone call from a hysterical Christine. And he's like, yeah, I don't know what this is all about. But we find out from him that he is no longer interested in Corned Beef Castle because he found out that they filed for Chapter 11 bankruptcy and that they also had left Kincaid advertising with a huge media bill, which we already know was $4 million. So Leland like disassociates himself from Christine and was like, I ain't tell her to do none of this. I, I didn't know none of this, okay? She is immediately terminated because if she's out here stealing confidential documents, I can't, I can't, I can't. No, she's fired. And so Leland says that, you know what? It wasn't me. I was having dinner with an associate, Aubrey. We all know him at Francoise. And Jessica's like, oh, the restaurant that's right downstairs in the building next to the express elevator straight up to Kincaid Advertising. And he's like, listen, we met at about 7 p.m. And we stayed there until well after 9 p.m. As we were leaving, the police were just arriving. So Aubrey was asking for a job, which I'm like, that's interesting. Why is Aubrey asking for a job when he has a contract with Kincaid? So is he finally going to quit or does he know something else? Question. So Leland also says that I only left the table for a few minutes to make a call at the bar. But other than that, I was with Aubrey the entire time. So the next scene, we're at the apartment with Howard and Victoria, who instead of having a conversation, proceed to make out and then go to have marital relations. While Jessica is just like chilling in the cut, like, uh, this is rude. Like, honestly, like this is... Really? Like, she is sitting right there. They apparently ordered a pizza. The pizza comes and it's anchovies and olives. And she's like, this isn't the right pizza. The pizza guy's like, I don't know. I just deliver this. It signed for it. It said that it was whatever you ordered. And I'm like, who orders anchovy and olive pizza? Like, that is gross. <laughs> I hate to, as they say, yuck, you're yum, but gross, okay? But I'm sure there are some things that I eat that people are like, why would you combine those things together? Like, I just don't understand. But they're all reasonable to me, so I won't give an example because they're all reasonable to me. (laughs) But you know what doesn't belong on pizza? Pineapples. You cannot convince me. Point blank. Period. Okay. (laughs) So Jessica proceeds to go to every delicatessen in the immediate area that delivers to the Kincaid Agency building. And on her eighth restaurant, it's either, I think she said she's been to seven others, so this is number eight. And we find out that there was a corned beef sandwich ordered to be delivered to Kincaid, but the delivery was canceled by phone. So the next scene, we are at the precinct with the security guard Jessica and the lieutenant and the security guard proceeds to refer 
to delivery men as meatballs. How absolutely offensive, period. So Jessica asked, like, what did he look like? And that's what the part of the response was. And I'm like, disgusting. And long story short, he had on gloves. He had on a woolen hat, a mustache, and sunglasses. So the security guard didn't really get a good look at him. So Jessica's like, why would a delivery man wear dark glasses at night? And there, there's a song about, I wear my sunglasses at night, but we're not going to get into that. We're not going to get into that. <laughs> because I'm assuming that a person who is in, well, maybe his eyes were dilated earlier that day. Okay, no one said he drove there. He could have walked there. It is the city. So, yeah, that's not necessarily as suspicious as the gloves. Because it does not seem that the temperature outside is such that you would need to wear a hat and gloves. So, that is more suspicious than the sunglasses. Don't get me wrong. I'm just being facetious. It Don't wear sunglasses at night unless you have an eye problem that requires you to do so. But because there are people who have that, we don't want to just assume. But clearly this man was doing crime, okay? <laughs> the lieutenant says, so you're saying that a delivery man murdered Larry Kincaid? To which Jessica says, someone posing as a delivery man killed Kincaid. And the lieutenant asked the, the security guard whether he would recognize this guy. And he says, yeah, maybe. I don't really know. I don't really know. <laughs> so Jessica has a plan, right? And so they bring Aubrey in and they have him sitting in the waiting room with the security guard who is like trying to get a light, just smoking straight up in his face, just being a real nuisance, but recognizable, even though it's only the two of them in there. But he's interacting with him. And so the lieutenant is like, oh, your plan didn't work. The security guard doesn't recognize Aubrey. So Jessica's like, you're right. Well, you know, we called him in, meaning Aubrey. Let's have a conversation with him. So they bring Aubrey in and Aubrey's like, I was with um, Leland Biddle when Kincaid was murdered. And Jessica's like, well, you know, the express elevator would take you upstairs in a few seconds. Um, that Larry Kincaid was trying to squeeze you out. There was a contract and you would need to quit in order to break it because he could not break the contract. And so Jessica brings up the fact that he had no official duties, although he had a contract. He left early every day. So he was basically just sitting there biding his time, doing nothing and being of no use or put, be, not being put to use, which was even worse than him just being fired. At least then he could go to another agency or whatnot. But they both dug their heels in about this. And Jessica surmises that he, being Aubrey, knew all of Larry's movements and that he knew that when Larry stayed late, he would order a corned beef sandwich from, and he probably even knew the restaurant he ordered them from. 
and so that he probably had a cooler ready with an outfit on the ground floor of the building. And that every day he left before the security guard came in so he would not be recognized when he finally did decide to murder Larry Kincaid. And then to ensure that he wouldn't be recognized, he had the security guard fired the next day. At this point, Aubrey says, I see what you're trying to do. You had me out there cooling my heels, hoping that the security guard recognized me. And the fact is he never saw me before. He couldn't recognize me. So what's your plan? It didn't work. To which Jessica's like, how did you know that man was a security guard? He wasn't in uniform. He didn't say anything. And the only way you would have known that he was a security guard is if you had seen him in his uniform the day you went to kill Larry Kincaid. At this point, Aubrey gives it all up. He says that Larry cheated him, humiliated him, and so he planned for months that he was going to do this. He thought he had it planned out perfectly. And just to make a a simple mistake brought it all, you know, crashing down. And that when he went in with the sandwich, that Kincaid didn't even look up and that he wanted to make sure that Kincaid knew who was murdering him. He says that killing him with the award was always part of the plan. It wasn't an improvise. And he's like, that was, that was good, wasn't it? That was, that was good. To which the camera pans to Jessica and she just has a look of disappointment and disgust, which is appropriate. Okay. <laughs> so that's that on that. Aubrey is the murderer. Um, this is an episode that I'll watch when it comes on. I can't say it's one of my favorites. It's definitely not one of my least favorites for sure. Um, there's a, despite all of the trash people in here, Larry Kincaid was trash. Aubrey's trash. Um, Grover Barth is a dumpster fire. Okay. Like they're all, (laughs) the Lieutenant is not fully trash, but he is the recycling receptacle. Okay. So he still goes out on Tuesdays and Fridays with the trash. Okay. (laughs) He does redeem himself, but he is trash adjacent when we meet him. Okay. He really is. But despite all that, this is an episode that I do enjoy watching. I will watch it whenever it's on. It's not going to be on my top five, but it's not going to be on my bottom five either. Um, I don't think, oh, you know what? Howard is trash as well. How could I forget? How could I forget? Howard is trash as well. And I think we have at least one more episode with Victoria and Howard. And I don't think he has a job in that one either, but don't quote me. I do not remember it well enough with regards to that. Um, But of course, Victoria is working in a job that could make her lots of money. It's real estate at that point, but I won't give any more away. That's a few seasons away from now. 
Anyway, next week, we will be talking about Dead Man's Gold. And we have the return of Leslie Nielsen. Yes, Naked Gun, 33 and a third. Okay. (laughs) Yes, he is back as a different character, however. But um, I'm excited about that one. It's not one of my favorite episodes, but it has its good points. And it has Leslie Nielsen. So there is that. Anyway, until then, you can find me on Instagram at the Fletcher Files Pod on Instagram, on Facebook at the Fletcher Files Pod Facebook page. You can also find me, of course, of course, of course, on Patreon at the Fletcher Files Pod on Patreon. And for your convenience, I have placed the link in the description box. So, so like, comment, and subscribe if you haven't already. And I hope to see you over on Patreon. If not, I will see you back here, same time, same place, same amazing host, Sunday at 5 p.m., for Dead Man's Gold and our friend Leslie Nielsen. Okay, until then, have an amazing week. Bye.